there's also two tracks to nerves and right. you've got the yeah you've got the hobbyist path and you've got the the professional, professional. And commercial path and they're there's a little bit of overlap but they're not the same and so lars do you want to um kick us off today yeah i guess that's what i'm doing we lost our announcer i'm the third one and i am never the one <laughs> welcome back to beam radio no <laughs> this this is what you get when you ask someone from youtube to uh, to do the intro what's up everybody thanks for tuning in to beam radio welcome back to beam radio i'm lars Friedman, and with me today i have bruce tate hi from chattanooga tennessee and our special guest who i will introduce shortly before then I just want to thank our sponsors, Groxio, and ask Bruce, what's up at Groxio? We just published our professional training calendar. And so go check that out on, on grox.io and see what's happening. We have a couple of courses that we're promoting for next year. Uh, one is our, our traditional OTP plus Elixir class. That's our intro to Elixir. And then we also have our live view class. And both of those are taught with the perspective of design and abstractions. That's the thing that we do pretty well that not every Elixir course out there does. So check it out. A strong pitch. All right, let's get into it. We have a very special guest. Last time I spoke on a podcast about a project that this man was involved with. I ended up getting hardware shipped to me. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Alex McLean. And I guess we're here to talk about nerves. But first, Alex, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about how you got into the beam. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess while we're waiting for the very special guest, I'll just go. Um, and the beam, getting into the beam was pretty cool. Um, and I'm actually glad you asked how I got into the beam instead of programming, because the beam is a much shorter story. And I'm sure you don't want this to roll over to a two-part episode. So uh, I started, uh, I found out about the beam and kind of Erlang and Elixir. I think Elixir was back in its 1.0 or 1.1 days around then. And um, so I found out about the beam while I was doing work on control systems. And at that time, I was working with basically AV control systems. So I was a control system programmer, installer. I did field service. Um, was working at that company for about five years and then came up through other AV stuff um, for more years before then, I'll just say. And that industry is very small and has only a certain set of offerings and kind of major players that you can choose from when it comes to putting in a system and programming it and choice of languages and stuff like that. And just to give an example there, one of those major vendors that I worked with a lot um, had what they called a C-like language. So I know from the Elixir world, like people cringe a little bit, even when you just hear like, oh, I have to work with C, which honestly, it's not that bad. But you know, like people cringe with that. So what happens when you start working with this like modified version of C that still that doesn't quite do things like C. And so now you can't even go to a book, you know, to to learn about it or stuff like that. You kind of just 
figuring stuff out and and there's quirks all over the place with it so you know after after installing you know a handful of those systems and and having to maintain them and also having to maintain other people's code in that area that was a big one there were a lot of challenges behind that and you run into a lot of code that's hard to understand especially when you pull somebody else's code off of a, off of a controller that you haven't touched before because you're you're coming in like taking over that job uh, for that for that building I guess I should probably explain like some of those buildings were typically the commercial AV stuff so doing theaters doing um, the government facilities city council chambers things like that um, uh, auditoriums uh, house of worship stuff all that kind of stuff so you know you've you've got something what uh, clubs too were pretty big so you got something with audio video lighting um, all these different types of things that are multimedia, uh, TVs, pro video projectors, all that stuff that you have to control and synchronize and, and all that. And so you're stuck kind of working in this pretty brittle language uh, that's also not too easy to understand. You can do certain things as a programmer to make it easier or harder, but that's kind of what you're dealing with. And, I, you know, I've I've been on my handful of going in the middle of the night service calls because it's like oh we've got the either uh something's broken in the middle of the night and they're a business that operates you know uh, those type of, of places typically have you know shows in the evening shows at night stuff like that um and so that can be a pain or on the other side of things if you're doing um some of the more commercial stuff you're doing or uh, uh if you're doing some of the stuff that opens in the morning so you're doing uh, you know, like a restaurant or a, something like that, you've got to go in in the middle of the night before they open. And doing some of those types of service calls can be a pain. And that started leading me down that path of, okay, well, this this system isn't inherently reliable in the way that you think about it and the way that people are, are programming it and stuff like that. How do I get something that's more reliable, has more up, to, you know, better uptime, and those types of principles and one of the things that uh that i got kind of drawn towards at that time was was ruby that was pretty popular for the website of things at that time i really looked at it for its scripting language capabilities because you've got like erb templates and stuff like that so the first pass at this was using ruby's templating to be able to write better code for these controllers templating a lot of it separating out guys yeah, so you're laughing Lars. yeah this is great um so making a lot of templated code um trying to dry out all that repetition separating the configuration from the implementation so a lot of this stuff is like i need to patch um there's a projector on output one there's a computer on input one i need to patch these things together in the video matrix you don't actually need to put all those patch points in your implementation that's that's talking out to that video matrix to make it do the switch like you just need to know at a higher level especially when you're going and troubleshooting this thing where's everything patched to you know what input goes wait, to what output wait wait <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute here so so you left you left c or a c like language and the templates in that language to do templating in ruby yep whoa yeah so so you're able to now put together that configuration and describe that in something a lot more simple, like, you know, Ruby maps. 
And so now you've just got these key values that say, hey, this thing, yeah, projector in the, I don't know, whatever, the East Room or whatever, is patched to input one. Podium PC input is patched to input to, you know, whatever. You've, you've got those. So now you've got human-readable things and the values that they correspond to in this nice little piece of kind of like documentation, but it's code. It's documentation is code. And you're able to separate that out. And then you don't have to have that all mixed into the actual programming logic. So that was like the first iteration of that. But number one, Ruby only gets you so far. Like it was really good for that aspect. But if you try to run, and, and so Ruby was cross-compiling here. So it was it was making the templates in for the other language. I was doing code generation. And then I'd run it through the other languages compiler. And then you'd be able to put that code on the box. But you're still running that C-like language on the box at the end of the day. And so I got to the point where I didn't like that anymore. And so I started looking around for other languages because I tried to put Ruby on one of those boxes before. And, you know, if, if you've ever tried to put Ruby on an embedded system, Ruby, uh, especially like the MRI, that VM, it likes to use a lot of memory. It likes to use resources. It's around developer friendliness uh, is what it's optimized around, not necessarily, um, not necessarily being highly performant in a very resource constrained environment. So that started causing problems. And by problems, I mean like one of the boxes I tried it on, like physically couldn't run it. Like Ruby needed more memory than was even on the box. It would just uh, give a memory error when I tried to to run it. It was it was a bad idea. Uh, actually, it was it was a good idea for being naive, but for actually creating a solution out of it, it was a bad idea. It didn't you know it didn't work right. It's the wrong technology for that. So I started looking around for other things. What VMs out there can help solve this problem? And one of the big picks at the time was Java, because that's. Um, you know, it's multi-threaded. It's a pretty performant VM. It is a bit of a resource hog, you know, when it comes to memory and stuff like that. It is a little big, but they did have an embedded version of it. I think it was Java ME or something like that, micro edition. Um, and that was one option, but Java was also kind of going out of style at the time too. You were kind of hitting, you know, the people were hitting the limits of Java at that time, especially for embedded. Um, and it, it still didn't, it didn't feel like the right choice to me. So I kept looking and ended up finding, um, Elixir because one of the important things was Ruby had that really nice syntax to it that made the code easy to understand. And so it was really important. I thought to get something easy to understand on top of these systems because that was part of the maintenance problems. The harder it is to understand the code, the harder it is to maintain one of those systems. And especially when you're going out there and doing troubleshooting in the middle of that, you know, this probably is reminiscent to a lot of web production troubleshooting as well. You know, uh, When you're trying to troubleshoot a system um, at odd hours and you're a little tired, so it makes it harder to comprehend things, you don't want a language that's getting in your way from being able to to load it into your brain and understand what's going on, right? You want to you want to be able to to clearly understand what's going on in that code as best as possible. So Elixir came up, uh, and it was very very early. And I was like, wait, this this looks kind of like Ruby, 
I'm diving into more about what it, you know, how it runs under the hood, and I find Beam VM, and I start seeing the principles of OTP. I'm like, works well for distributed systems, highly reliable, you know, all, all the OTP checkboxes that we know of really well for that. Right? Oh, and, and, you know, built for, built for embedded devices, you know, came from running on telephone switches, something that needs to be highly reliable. I was like, this sounds great. Um, how have I never heard of this before? And uh, let me dive into this. And so played around with it a little bit. And, um, actually unintentionally discarded it at first because a friend and I were looking through how Elixir worked and we're like, we're like, how do you, how do you build objects in this? We see like def module, whatever, but like, where are, where are our objects? And so because it was an object oriented, we actually like, we kind of threw it away on the first pass, but eventually circled back to it. Clearly not a very classy language. Clearly not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what time will we we be talking about? What what time frame? Uh, like date? Yeah, yeah. What uh, year? The uh, this was probably around twenty fourteen ish, something like that. Okay, so so um, one point one ish for Elixir. Yeah, it was around then. So it was it was still rough around the edges. Like you're still making like half Erlang, half Elixir calls. You're still using like colon, whatever the Erlang module is followed by whatever your function call is. Like, I don't, uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think Elixir even had a list module at that point. I think you're still using Erlang list under the hood, if I remember right. It was early. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but it didn't make the cut. Well, it so it did eventually. So we we saw the light. We started realizing, okay, well, you just have to think in functional terms. And then and once we kind of figured that out, we're like, oh wait, this is going to have, um, this is going to lead us to better design patterns and lead to more reliable systems and stuff like that because we're not able to mutate the world out from under us. And one of the other really cool things we saw in that is uh, one of the friends I was working with. Um, at, at that company and on that project at the time was uh, he, he had been building this actor model library in Ruby at the time. And I honestly can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, but he was building that up and the actor model was really, really cool. And so we find out like, oh, the beam has that built in and long story short, they call it gen server. And we're like, oh, we can stop developing a library like like this is already doing a lot of things we're reinventing the wheel on so we kind of went down that path and then also to give credit where it's due here um rose point navigation is up in my area and they were like the first or one of the first people well, i guess um Plato was probably the first with frank but rose point navigation was doing stuff um basically with very early versions of of nerves and they were um they were running Elixir on their devices, and yeah, uh, wasn't that wasn't that on the um, on the tow boat the the push boats? Yeah, they were doing. Uh, I can't remember exactly what type of boat, but yeah, they were doing radar navigation um, systems with boats, and uh, they were basically pulling that data from your from your boat's radar into a BeagleBone Black that's running Elixir and processing that data. And they were doing something with how they visualize it that was special, and. Uh, yeah, like really, really high data ingest on this little embedded device. So it, uh, it was really cool. And that's so, way cool. Yeah. So there's this there's this man like across the street that's that's uh, 
that's watching these these toes be pushed across the river right over there. So I know it's a radio program. I just pointed to my window, right? And um, he has this this long list of these these push boats. And um, wasn't it Garth at Rose Point that yes. that? Yeah, okay, great, great, great. So um, so basically, this is like a this is like the hub of of an airport or something, right? So they they get these huge barge trains and they park them right outside the window, right? And um, and then there's the big boats go push them in, and then there's the smaller smaller push boats that take one or two. They play Tetris, right? They they grab one or two out of the middle, and then they shoot them um, like a like three or four miles away and kind of deliver them around the Chattanooga area until you have these these um, these barges that are about a foot off the water, meaning that they're full, meaning that there's like eight feet under the water. And then when they bring them back, they're they're really tall, right? They look imposing, but they're empty. And they're, they're about like eight to 10 foot high, right? So I kind of watch this whole drama play out every day and it is mesmerizing. I don't know how I ever get any work done. Yeah, that that whole world is pretty cool. Um, there could probably be a whole other podcast on that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so Garth definitely um, helped me see the light on some of this stuff. Uh, his presentation there was really really cool, and um, and the systems they were working with really were really cool too. Um, so that kind of led me into being able to see like, oh, hey, this is this is actually feasible, and kind of here's how you would do it and stuff like that. Uh, long story short. I got partway down that path, but then obviously since where I am today, uh, ended up leaving the AV industry. Uh, so didn't complete that project at the time. I've still got a handful of like open source stuff up for it, but it's, um, trust me, you don't want to use it unless you're in that industry. Uh, you know, you're, you're already working with, with better stuff. So, um, but, but that was great. So I ended up making the switch to web and, uh, had already been doing that, like you know, as side projects and stuff like that, but got the opportunity to go over and do web consulting and uh, basically agency type work. And it was unfortunate to leave the AV industry, I, I think, but um, that industry was going through another one of its shifts uh, while I was there. And I'll just say uh, it it was going going to make a uh, uh, going to be a lot harder as a as a career path to stay in it because that industry is uh, kind of shrinking and getting consolidated with a lot of the other tech and stuff that's coming out, and uh, I had some opportunities to use. Um, long story short, Elixir on larger scales as well, so that was a little tempting. Um, so yeah, I came over to that, and then uh, I'll I'll just say long story short, unless you want to dive into it um did some ruby to elixir conversion type stuff in that space after seeing the light on on how awesome the beam is and uh started doing that with web projects and have been i guess up until now i've been doing consulting uh, on the website for the last seven ish years all right that's a heck of a journey now that was the short version oh yeah yeah it was <laughs> But then you've been doing the journey from sort of uh, embedded in the AV world and then into web. And then you've spent a significant amount of time with nerves, right? So that was 
that was part of that journey. And from what I gather, you're pretty focused on nerves right now, right? Yeah, I definitely am. And so I think I had a hand, like nerves was kind of my intro into Elixir uh, based on what I described here. So I kind of went from Elixir on the embedded side to Elixir on the website, which is probably the opposite transition that most people make in, you know, when you're working with Elixir. So uh, that, that part probably feels a bit weird, but I probably have a different perspective to lend because of that. And so, yeah, I've, I've been doing, you know, Elixir or uh, Nerves as a hobby ever since, you know, I found it. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to bridge that over to the commercial side a couple times. So in the consulting world, I was able to do that a bit and um, bring Nerves commercially into uh, a handful of clients' projects who were looking to build uh, embedded products. And then currently I'm I'm over at Gridpoint right now, um, not consulting anymore, uh, working directly for them. And uh, they're going through a Nerves exploration right now to see how nerves might benefit uh, some of their hardware and uh, some of the technology that they're coming out with here. That's very interesting. Gridpoint has sort of sailed up as part of a lot of conversations I've had recently. Uh, from what I gather, there's a there's a tech boss in there somewhere that's just doing a lot of transitioning into Elixir. So, and you're spinning up the nerves team. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Very cool. Do you get the sense that Nerves is growing in adoption, or is it sort of a steady? steady no, 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 no one likes Nerves more. It's it's gone. Um, no, it's it's been huge. Uh, I I in the last three years, I think the visibility of Nerves has grown a lot, and the willingness to adopt it commercially has been growing like crazy. It, it seems like it's really been exploding since then. So back when I kind of saw that, um, that Rose Point talk, like I mentioned, there were like two or maybe three companies out there using nerves and, you know, Frank was working at one of them. So, you know, uh, the, the ecosystem was really small nowadays. Like I, I can't even keep track of how many people are using it. Um, how many companies are actually using it. And it seems like there's a pretty big shift going on right now where companies are starting to realize that C is not the only language. When I say C here, I'll bundle C and C++ together, even though if you're if you're really technical, you know there's a big difference between the two. Um, but for an Elixir podcast, they probably sound the same too, you know, to anyone listening here. Uh, uh, just to say <laughs> C sharp. Yeah. C sharp as well, D, B, I guess it's it's all the same. Just alphabet soup. It all came out of alphabet, right? <laughs> but I mean, don't you think that a lot of people use C more as a C minus minus? <laughs> right. As oh. as less of an object-oriented thing and, and more of a compiler with the features where occasionally you'll put in the, um, you'll, you'll take advantage of, of the full feature set. Oh, it depends that there's a big can of worms there because the other thing around C plus is, is like, do you even want to take advantage of the full feature set in a project? Because there's some sharp edges. Uh, 
have That's gotten the other, idea yeah. that everyone picks a subset of yeah, C++ and it's never the same subset. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of one of those philosophies. But yeah, so like because of that, there's there's so much to that ecosystem, and it, uh, there's probably no good way to put this, but like it, uh, those types of apps can get tedious in the things that aren't necessarily solving your business problems. So you're you're sitting there doing your memory management and stuff like that. How do I? you know, how do I allocate memory? How do I free my memory? Do I do it at the right time? You know, do I make sure to do it at the right times? Do I make sure to clean up after, you know, if you're using C++, do I make sure to clean up after my objects after I, you know, after I'm done using them? Um, there's those types of things. And if you're used to the Elixir side or the Ruby side or kind of that higher level side, um, higher level language side, where you don't have to worry about that stuff and you've got a garbage collector and stuff like that, you're, you're mostly focused on, okay, I just need to solve this problem. How do I parse this blob of JSON to get the change out of there that I needed and go apply it to, uh, you know, my system controller or whatever, the thing that needs to do the thing. And you're focused on that. Like, what did the user tell me to do? How do I go take an action based off of it? And there's a lot less ceremony under there that goes on. Which also means there's a layer of of bugs that you kind of avoid by doing that as well. And and don't get me wrong, you can still shoot yourself in the foot with performance problems uh, by architecting things wrong in Elixir or on the Beam or stuff like that. But there's more guardrails to help you not do that. And I think that's what what's starting to be seen in these commercial projects is the feeling that it's taking a lot longer to develop my C++ application and we're also not getting the reliability out of it that we expected. There's there's that type of thing going on. And I've worked with a handful of startups too and speed is is really important when you're launching a startup, right? Like you need to get your product out there and you need to start testing like did I actually hit the mark on this? And so when you've got something like Elixir in the beam a language and a VM and that ecosystem that helps you with rapid development, which Ruby does too. But I, I kind of think on, um, on the Elixir side, I feel like it helps you with rapid, stable development, um, in you know inefficient ways <laughs> as well. Um, you can get that product out there and in users' hands and being tested by people. Uh, be it MVP or an actual launch or whatever, but you can get it out there quicker. And that's really valuable, I think, in that case. And um, and the business folks are starting to see that, you know, folks at the CTO level and stuff like that. Uh, they're starting to see the importance of that. And I think that's why we're seeing this shift and more willingness for, for nerves adoption now is um, it's nerves has gotten significantly more mature over the last, what, 10, you know, 10 ish years have been in existence here. Uh, it's great for commercial use. Now it's, it, it works, you know, it's good for commercial use and, um, and it can be a more efficient platform to be developing in right now for those things that you need to, to get out there that are, um, important to shorten that development timeline on. And, and get out into the wild and get tested and see, um, you know, and, and get that stuff in front of users. Yeah, so it seems like you're saying 
there's a lot to unpack there, right? But it seems like the first thing that you were saying was that was that C++, C and C++, sometimes the easy things seemed easy, but the hard things were really hard, right? And so yes. once, you, once you start to get to those hard things and recognize that the reliability is the problem, the ease of being able to understand systems is the problem. All of those things mean that in Elixir, sometimes the hard things get really, really easy. So I think that that's um, that you said that really, really well. And the second thing that you said that was pretty interesting is almost the initial value proposition for Phoenix, right? It's the idea that you could be productive, but you didn't have to give up the reliability to be productive. And I think it's pretty interesting to see Elixir in, applied in both those spaces with, with almost the same value proposition. It's almost like the abstractions underneath have something to do with it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, because they definitely do. Um, and there's a cool place where we are, I think, in technology right now that really helps with that alignment between the two. And that's all of the IoT products that are you know, out there right now or that are going to market. So what technologies do you go with these days when you need a cloud platform tied to a hardware device? And there's a couple old school answers to that, but one of the cool modern ones is, whoa, you can actually start using Elixir across the entire stack. Which is amazing. And sometimes those cloud platforms are, well, they're not that security sensor on the window, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a car <laughs> or yeah. a thermostat. And that's 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 a more um, intense problem than than a single a single sensor. Yeah, totally. And and especially in the commercial cases, you know, what how do you start dealing with these networks of sensors and things like that? And your your hardware in a system like that really turns into basically a big distributed systems problem at that point, right? So you're no longer working with, oh, I have one web server node or something like that. As soon as you deploy all this hardware and your product is not this one device that a user does stuff to, your product is, I have a, a device that that's, or, you know, all these sensors and stuff monitoring data, like you, you described, they probably report up to a controller that all that stuff reports up to the cloud and they might, the user might be able to monitor that in a dashboard and control stuff from a cloud dashboard. They probably have something on their phone that they can control everything with as well. That entire ecosystem is the product. It's no longer that, that little like widget or that sensor that somebody uses anymore. Right. And so when you yeah. tie all that together, it's like, what brings that whole ecosystem together? And yeah, you could use a bunch of disparate languages in all these different places. And then you've got these little segmented teams that kind of have their their siloed knowledge over like, oh, I know how this one specific parts of the API works, but they've never seen what happens on the controller, the hardware in their life. And you start having those communication problems between teams where folks kind of don't understand different parts of the system. So one of those cool things about being able to bring it in at least at a higher level of like you're talking elixir to elixir across the stack is it's a lot easier for one person on one side of that stack to understand what's going on on the other side if you have to write transports between those two 
you're not trying to figure out how to convert between different languages of, you know, like, oh, let's just serialize everything to JSON, for example. Well, JSON's not exactly the most efficient protocol when you're trying to talk, say, over a cellular radio to a tiny little embedded device. Um, you know, there's other more efficient ways of doing that. And actually, like Erlang term format, Erlang already has a way to serialize its stuff in the beam to a binary format. And if you're running the beam uh, on both nodes, on both sides of that, you could you could serialize right to binary there with ETF, push it across the wire to the other node. And because it's a beam VM, it knows how to unpack that already. And so then suddenly, and suddenly, instead of dealing with packing and unpacking binaries, you're dealing with events. Yes. And that's the way to reason about a, a distributed system. It's so it's it's all about bringing the mind up um, and and dealing with dealing with the problems two levels up than than the place you would be if you were in a C or a C plus plus. Yeah, totally. And to also like add a little perspective on the other side, so so it doesn't just sound like I'm hating on C and C plus plus here. Uh, those can still serve a purpose in an elixir and in a nerve system the difference is you start shifting uh, areas of what's the right tool for the right job so for example if you need to go um, working with uh, drivers in the linux kernel or stuff like that because nerves is based on embedded linux at the end of the day all of that stuff is still written in c now that's vanilla c it's not c plus plus but if you need to go modify any of that, or you need to go add a driver or patch a driver or stuff like that, it's in C. And does it make sense to convert that to Elixir? No, it doesn't. Um, now, for anyone who's keeping up on it, there is a little bit where there's some rust sneaking into the Linux kernel, it sounds like, potentially. But we'll just, I'll just say, for the sake of argument, I know that's happening, but I'm, we'll just pretend it's, you know, it's not for the sake of the conversation here. Um, but, you know, like, that's one of the areas where no, you're not going to be patching the Linux kernel by putting Elixir into the Linux kernel, right? Like that doesn't make sense. So yes, you still want to use C in that area. It's the way you speak to the kernel. It's still highly performant in the kernel and, and those types of things. Uh, the other type of area is what happens when you need, I'm going to have to use a loaded term, but I'll explain it. What happens when you need real-time control over something? And real time is now a hairy word. So how I'm going to explain it is, is it's the technical term real time where you're dealing with something like a motor control or a power control or something like that, where say you have something happening on a certain cycle. So picture like a sine wave. And if you miss something on that cycle, bad things happen to your system. You need to keep very precise timing of what's going on. otherwise. Um, you're going to have problems. And and that also doesn't necessarily mean like your system's going to crash. It means like, you know, your robot is going to hit a wall or you're, um, uh, you're going to like burn up your power supply because you over-voltaged it because you're, you didn't like clamp that sine wave down of your voltage at the right time or something like that. So, yeah, so the real time mm -hmm. that's commonly mentioned if you're doing web development, that's just... Uh, sort of near time yes it's, it's it should feel instant 
or quick. And then there's what er, I would say Erlang is typically called uh, near real time or soft real time, which right. means consistently low latencies as well as the system can perform that. And that's sort of what the whole preemptive uh, multiprocessing gets us, which is that typically it will keep very consistent latencies. And for some sort of hardware focused things, that's plenty. And then there are, <laughs> there's the hardware where that is not enough and you need sort of deterministic or, or something akin to that performance where it's like, oh yeah, no garbage collector will ever be allowed to run in this context. Yeah, exactly. And so that's hard real time. And yeah. so what you described earlier, so like the near real time, soft real time, that works for like 90% of your use cases, right? That's going to work for a lot of stuff. Um, but once you need that hard real time, other than if anyone has heard about what's going on with the GRISP2 and that kind of stuff, like that's a platform that can do hard real time, but I'm going to, again, ignore that for the conversation. Um, if you need that hard real time in an embedded system, you're probably going to need to move off of the beam or I should say outside of the beam to do it. And so that might mean you need a dedicated microcontroller to go do that. So you might need like uh, one of the... Um, ARM M0 core chips or something like that. You'll probably have something dedicated that's a real-time processor. And those are typically written in C or C++. And that makes sense because those are languages that are very close to the metal that will help you keep your, your timing and all that. It doesn't have something like a garbage collector that's going to sneak up arbitrarily on you and and pause a thread and and do garbage collection in the middle of trying to make sure your, you know, your, your sine wave or whatever your thing is doing is actually doing what it needs to, right? Um, it's, it's going to stay out of the way when it's supposed to. And, and that seems like a fairly common pattern with nerves that in certain cases, like, oh yeah, you want an Arduino or similar to be doing this piece of work, a microcontroller or a dedicated processing unit of some sort, but that needs to be coordinated with other things. Yes. And there's something yeah. coming out of or some signal going into that machine. Like even if that has to do constant work to keep the engine running, uh, the speed at which the engine should be running typically comes from the, the larger system. Exactly. So that's where you can use nerves as that system to orchestrate and supervise the things underneath it. And so that's kind of that blend of where C or C++ can kind of still play um, nicely in that ecosystem. So I'm not saying you have to abandon C or C++ to go over to nerves, um, but you can use it in strategic places like that of the parts of the application where timings matter or, you know, stuff like that. And then use nerves for what it's good at and the beam for what it's good at, which is orchestration, process management, doing those higher level activities. Like how do I ingest data from my internet connection you know, from that cloud platform, how do I do that ingest? Um, those types of things. And that layer is great at that. And then you can kind of glue them together. Yeah, and I think we're we're used to making trade-offs like that, right? Like if, if you go outside of the Elixir community and even into places like the Clojure community, the Haskell community, 
we're used to having this this imperative shell and this kind of um, this functional core. And the functional core, we try to push the code into there, um, and then um, and then and then make these trade-offs for things that are less than, but for but still allow, allow us to get the full capabilities of a functional language, right? And I think that that we're also used to making that trade-off in in Elixir and Erlang and have always been so. So I think it's it's really what's in control, right? And so by having the orchestration and control um, in in Elixir Erlang, you gain so much. Yeah, totally. There's also the simple answer to like, are we abandoning C? Like, oh, what's the beam built on? No, no, we're not abandoning C. Someone just built that put a lot of work into building some good C for us, and then we can lean on that for the majority of our work. Now, I want to divert us a little bit into all your community efforts because you are doing a bunch of things in the Nerves community, specifically to actually pull some nerves community members together and have actual conversations. What's that about? Yeah. Well, well, I guess, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a bunch of things. I guess I do one, one thing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it keeps coming back. So uh. well, it does. Okay. So yes, it's, it's a recurring thing. So we've got the nerves meetup going on uh, that happens once a month, typically at the end of the month. So last Wednesday of the month, if you're on my side of the international dateline. I know that causes some problems in the, the EU. Very upsetting. I know. Yeah. So if you're if you're basically over in um the North America side of things, last Wednesday of the month, uh 6 p.m. Pacific time, which the time has also been hard to work out too, but that seems to be able to at least span everybody on the continent, plus some folks from uh, you know, that are kind of slightly outside. Um, or anybody on the other side of the world who's willing to be up a little late. Uh, but I know there's 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 been talks there, and there I will just say TBD. Um, I I haven't been throwing you under the bus, Lars, because I know you have too much on your plate. But it'd be nice if somebody from the the EU side um, <laughs> volunteered for that. But I already spoke a lot about that in uh, one of the presentations. So that uh, so the nerves meetup is something that was handed over to me at towards the beginning of this year, and so it's been going for several years, and I don't know exactly how long, but I want to say I joined it, it uh, two or three years ago, something like that, and uh, uh, I think probably a lot of this community knows Todd Reziduk, great guy, and uh, he he got too busy to uh, to keep it running, so he asked if I would do it, and I said yes, and. I uh, took it and run with ran with it. So we've got um, a meetup.com page now as well for it. So if you actually want to subscribe and get notifications of the events, um, meetup.com is a good place to go. Uh, Lars, your newsletter is a great place to subscribe to. Yeah, it consistently the... reports that the meetup happened yesterday. So <laughs> yeah, Exactly, yes. So if you want to know when you missed the meetup, make sure to sign up to Lars's newsletter. Uh, no, but you also do a good uh, job in there of sharing the presentations as well. So we also record the presentations, and those are now up and captured uh, up on YouTube on, I'm forgetting the channel name now. I think it's just called Nerves Meetup. So those are up on YouTube captured under Nerves Meetup, and um, 
so you can go there if you weren't able to make it as to recording you know whatever and yeah this has been a way to do a couple things number one make sure there's that space for everybody in the community who's interested in nerfs to be able to get together share their projects meet other people uh, get ideas for projects if you're kind of new to this world and don't necessarily know where to start, it's one of those places to talk to other people and see what they're doing and kind of get some inspiration there. And if you're someone who's built a project or learned something or have something cool to show off to people and you don't even have to be an expert to do it, then we've got the ability to to give presentations there. And like I said, the, the presentation parts we record and then we put those up and uh, there's one of those nuggets of knowledge out there then that... Uh, that's captured for the community. Yeah, and that's actually something the nerds community has lacked a little bit, which I think the meetup partially addresses, which is, I guess, uh, persistent information. Yes. Because there's so much knowledge being shared in the Slack. Like, if you are interested in nerves, join the Elixir Lang Slack and find the nerves channel. That's where it happens. That's where nerves lives and thrives to the largest extent. <clears throat> but things that are persistent artifacts that people can learn from is like, yeah, if people do write-ups, that's what we get. Uh, and we get conference talks, increasingly conference talks. There's a There's been a fair number of nerves talks at both CodeBeam and ElixirConf, I think. But it's good to have have sources where things are shared and they they are also kept around uh, for posterity. Yeah, now, abs absolutely. Yeah. Um, now I'm started to speculate. Like Todd handed the meetup over to you and started NervsConf. Is that sort of the career progression or the the community progression? Like you start a meetup and then you switch up to a conference and then someone else takes the meetup. And then when they need to start a conference, they hand off the meetup. Is this a thing? Oh, no. I wasn't even thinking about this, but I'll get back to you when Todd suckers me into running NervesConf. Oh, and he goes on to run something else. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> You're also doing some stuff that is not strictly nerves. What's that about? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, let me add one other point to what you were saying there, too. Um, Capturing knowledge in the nerves community is something that I definitely felt was very important too, because that either wasn't happening before, it was basically either through like what you were saying, it was either through documentation or a couple of blog posts here and there. Like if you haven't checked out Connor Rigby's blog, he's done a ton of good stuff, uh, posts out there uh, about nerves. But there's a whole lot of people that have been working on cool stuff and companies who have been working on cool stuff that haven't necessarily shared it or didn't have a medium to share it other than either write a blog post or speak about it at a conference. And there's this really big gray area in between. And for me, for example, like I, I don't like writing. Writing's not my thing. It's not my medium. And, and I honestly don't like reading either. Uh, it's, you know, it's probably weird for a programmer, but it's like, ah, it's just, it, those are just things I don't like. It doesn't click with me. Um, I like the visual content and I also like to be able to, uh, I, I like those informal conversations as well and kind of that informal knowledge sharing and the, the lower pressure side of things. So 
I think there's a, there's that space there too, for people who want to be able to share stuff, but you don't want to have the pressure of, I can only do this once a year at Elixir Conf and that's where I need to get my idea out. I have to put all this work into this presentation. I have to, um, I was out there at Elixir Conf this year and I have to pay, you know, um, a dollar amount with a lot of zeros after it to go fly out there and book the hotel and all that kind of stuff um, to go give, you know, to go do that kind of thing. And I think this is a good, um, a, a good thing that helps fill that gap. So you can show up virtually to one of these monthly events. If you're a presenter, you know, let me know ahead of time. I'll get you on the, on the calendar for it. Um, but you can show up there and present your ideas, present what you've learned. If your company is doing something public that you can talk about, uh, you know, that's a thing. And then it's a place where it gets captured. And, you know, so we've got that recorded and then uh, put up in that YouTube artifact. And it's one of those ways that is kind of a lower barrier to entry to do. It's lower pressure. There's typically a smaller audience there, you know, so there's not hundreds of people in the room. There's there's tens of people. So, you know, you'll you'll have maybe 20 to 30 people in the room. And, and it's a lot lower pressure. Um, you know, if you've showed up to those events before, you already probably know a good chunk of people in the room. So it's not like, oh, I'm doing this talk in front of a bunch of strangers. It's more like, oh, hey, I'm just letting people know um, some cool stuff I learned. And it's the people I hang out with on a regular basis. So it, it can feel a lot less intimidating uh, to go about it that way. And uh, it's it's kind of a good little way to get your name out there because you've got the the video artifact afterwards, and you know you can you can put that out on your own social media or um, you know on your own website or blog or whatever, and you've got that you know captured as well. And it's also one of those nuggets of information for the community in general, um, and one of those persistent pieces of knowledge, like you mentioned. Yeah, very cool. But full stack engineering, was that? Yes. So that is one of my other exercises in knowledge sharing. Because this is one of the things that I personally have been bad at as well. And knowledge sharing is one of the things in general that I think is really important in your career. Probably any career, but especially in engineering as well. Um, one of the mindsets I see from the engineering side is I have to be a, some kind of super genius at something before I can start sharing what I'm doing. That's absolutely not true. And so that that's one of the things that I, that I kind of um, had been thinking around this is like, what's my thing that I'm going to do to just start sharing the things that I'm learning, sharing things that I'm doing um, and that kind of stuff. And like I mentioned a little earlier, there's a couple of things that come to mind that are the obvious choices. Oh, I could go write a blog. Um, oh, I could go do conference talks. I could go do whatever. But like I said, like the blogging isn't me. Writing isn't me. And so I needed to find out what clicks with me that also other people are going to be able to engage with. And so I took the the video rest. So we I actually do a video podcast around this. So Full Stack Engineering is a video podcast up on YouTube. And I think that also clicks with my AV background. 
So I still get to use some of those skills um, and dust those off from back in the day uh, to put this together as well. And this is a place where I, I do this with Avelino Romo. He's the co-host on here. And sometimes we have a guest, sometimes we don't, just depends on, on the show. And this is where we share crazy things we've learned or talked about or whatever. And at this point, full stack engineering as a term is pretty ironic in terms of this podcast. It's uh, or it's very much tongue in cheek. So we talk about all kinds of stuff at this point. It started off with doing a little home lab work of, hey, here's here's some server equipment and stuff we built out and here's how we've done networking and things like that. We were able to get a couple uh, interesting guests on the show who have got, uh, we went in a completely other direction. So we've talked, how do you do sales for software projects? Uh, one In the most recent one, which is launching this Friday, so probably will have been launched by the time this podcast comes out, is about leadership. So how do you go about engineering leadership? So we took the term full stack where most people think, okay, I'm doing front end and back end, but you know, me as a, as a firmware guy, one of the first steps was, okay, well, I say full stack is actually front end, back end firmware and, and technically DevOps too. Right. So I expanded to there. And so that, that kind of just ran into the podcast of like, you know what, you can kind of twist anything into engineering if you, if you really think hard enough. So I, Everything on here is some type of engineering. So we just call it full stack engineering. Sales, people. Yeah, it's, it's, that's right. You know, sales is just social engineering, right, Lars? Um, so people end. Yeah. So we call it full stack. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's very so, cool. I think people should check it out. Yeah. It, it's been fun. Um, the other thing that was like a personal exercise in this to me is, it's an exercise in not being perfect. And I don't know if this clicks with you as well, Lars, um, knowing a little bit about your personality. But for me, I really like to polish something and and feel like I've delivered something of really high quality. And I think pro that probably clicks with a lot of engineers too, I would guess. And so one of the things about this podcast is it's not supposed to be about the most polished quality. It's supposed to be about shipping, shipping a product. The podcast is the product, right? Um, so and here this I is thought you were going to for a big old metaphor. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> literally. Nice no. Yes. Um, yeah, this is, this is a product management exercise. And this is, this is, this podcast is essentially a long running MVP, right? So it's, it's about, Hey, can we build and package up a product? Can we somewhat consistently ship it? And how do we not spend too much time perfecting to the point where it never ships, right? Like we want to be getting stuff out there and, uh, but also not stuff that's, that's totally bad, right? There, there's, there's a, there's a balance. And so this is an exercise in finding that balance. Um, and in a way in doing it where you're not, you're not necessarily working with software because we, we do that exercise in software every single day. So this is a, hmm. this is a different take on it. I definitely want to speak to some of that because as you said, uh, this definitely resonates with me 
but partially because my personality is very much effort chipped. Uh, I do not polish to a shine. Rather, I really like shipping good things, but I do not have the time, inclination, or patience to spend all my time polishing something. Some side projects end up trapped and lost in that sort of vein. But this is also, as you were saying, a lot of developers and a lot of engineers are very keen to sort of, no, I just gotta, I just gotta have the right topic to publish. And it's like, guess what? You will never ever publish or you will publish once. Because in my experience, when I've spoken to people like that, it's like, okay, what did you work on last week? This, uh, I did this with this and then uh, some Kubernetes and like push notifications and yada, yada, yada. I was like, okay, pick one of those things, write it up, tell people what you did. People are going to find it useful or it's going to be crickets because you haven't published before. Because like publishing consistently is what publishing is all about. You can't expect sort of blockbuster hits or viral spreads. And most developers want to sort of publish something about what they're currently most excited about, sort of their next big thing. And the truth is they should probably just write up what, something they already know, something yeah. they know like the back of their hand, because it's super useful to someone, not you. You're not writing this because it's useful to you unless it's a sort of learning exercise to actually do the write-up, but just get it out there. Keep it simple. I mean, you should write about things you're interested in, but it might not be the newest thing to you. I think my first sort of hacker news uh, spread post was things I'm excited about in Elixir. And th so this was the stuff I'd followed for like a few weeks uh, and gotten into the last few months. And I just summarized like this project is cool. This project is cool. This project is cool. Da, 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 da. And people cared because it's, it's interesting to get an overview, even though to me it felt cheap and trivial. I was just a little bit hyped from an ElixirConf and decided to write it up. I think that the culture of completing things and perfecting things sometimes gets in the way of us as we teach, uh, teach new developers, right? So one of the things that we try to do at Groxio, especially in our trainings and in our videos, is to leave mistakes in because... It's not really the truth that we do things right the first time. It's not really the truth that we speak things right the first time or write things right the first time. So uh, working a little bit of honesty into what we do, whether it's a how-to programming video or a podcast, it's, it's a very healthy thing, profoundly healthy to people who are trying to break into the Elixir environment. And they see case after case after case of person of of a person coding something perfectly the first time because they've rehearsed it. That's not the real programming experience. That's not the real engineering experience. That is such a good point, and that leads into one of the other things that exactly is what full stack engineering as a podcast is all about too, and something that as I've coached engineers is a big point is exactly what you just mentioned. Like you're not necessarily going to be right the first time and trying to be right the first time 
or being, I should say, being emotionally invested in being right the first time is not a good approach to take. Uh, so like this podcast is an exercise in failure, essentially. Um, so one of the things I'm playing around with for this is, you know, is marketing, you get YouTube analytics and all that kind of stuff. So like Lars said, is the message landing on people? You know, is it hitting the right people? Um, are they getting something from it? And what Lars said there is like, you can't just put one thing out there and expect that everyone's going to be like, oh, you just said the smartest thing and it's going to take off and be the viral thing. Or like, it doesn't work that way. So you have to be okay with being wrong and course correcting. And it's just more about like, I have a theory. Let me go test the waters on that theory. Let me throw something out there. And then let me observe it and see how off it was from my hypothesis. And don't be emotionally invested in that. Just be be curious about it, right? Go, go at it with curiosity, not as it means something about you as a person, um, you know, personally. And see what happened and look at those results and see, okay, well, now where do I need to course correct that to um, uh, to go from there? And, and then do the next one and then do the next one. And eventually you'll end up hitting your target. And so, yeah, to take that back to like coding with what you just said, Bruce, like same thing with coding, like you're probably not going to get the solution right the first time. Don't go in, like strive to write good code, but be okay with not being right all the time, right? Like you're just trying to get to a certain point. So throw some code out there, try it, see how it worked. You know, did you like it? Could you do it better? You could. Okay, cool. Do a little refinement. Try again and just go with that natural progression. All right. Let's wrap up there. Humble and curious. That's how I like my developers. All right. Thank you all for tagging along with us on this episode of Beam Radio. We have been brought to you by Groxio, which is career fuel for programmers. Thank you so much to my co-host Bruce and our very special guest, Alex McLean. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon.